Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet podcast. Richard Lane with you on Friday, August the 2nd. This week we're focusing on a seminar that we're publishing today, August the 2nd, and this concerns sleep apnea. This is quite a common problem that a lot of people know a little bit about, but we thought it would be good to explore it in more detail, pegged to this seminar. So I'm really delighted to be joined on the line, and it's evening in Melbourne, Australia, and it's also the middle of winter. So come in, uh, Amy Jordan. Hello there. My name's uh, Amy Jordan. I'm from the Melbourne School. School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne uh, in Australia. You're one of the authors of this seminar looking at sleep apnea. As I said in the intro, it's something that people are quite aware of. It's not that uncommon, but there are some quite complex processes going on behind it. Let's start off with some definitions. What exactly is sleep apnea? How common is it? And what are the major risk factors, do you think? Sleep apnea is a disorder of repetitive collapse of the upper airway that occurs during sleep. Patients with the disorder can breathe fine during wake and this is despite the fact that they have a small airway but they have many muscles around the airway that hold it open and however when they go to sleep the these muscles relax as do many muscles in the body and so their airway then collapses and it causes uh, breathing to either completely stop or to be uh, impaired and so usually what happens is the patient doesn't resume breathing until they briefly wake up from sleep so they have problems with uh, getting repetitively hypoxic or having low oxygen repetitively throughout the night, but also with a very disrupted sleep with these uh, brief awakenings occurring throughout the night. It's actually very common. A recent study from the American Journal of Epidemiology has shown that in uh, Americans aged 30 to 70 years, 13% of men and 6% of women had a moderate or severe sleep apnea. So that's pretty pretty common. The major risk factors for sleep apnea are obesity and male gender, although it's also more common uh, with advancing age and women after menopause. And there's also genetic and ethnic risk factors for the disorder. And how is it usually treated? And, and how, sorry, I should add as well, how dangerous is it? I mean, obviously, for cutting off uh, breathing completely, there, you, there is a, a, a risk of serious injury or death here, isn't there? Most people with sleep apnea do have the disorder for many years. And so exactly whether people are dying during the night is the evidence isn't great that that's actually happening so most people do wake up and, and resume breathing again however it, it certainly has adverse consequences in terms of firstly due to the sleepiness so uh, people with the disorder are at increased risk of crashing their car and having workplace accidents but also there's cardiovascular consequences so it's certainly it's a bad disorder uh, in, in those regards. In terms of how it's treat treated the most common treatment for it is um, what's called uh, CPAP treatment or continuous positive airway pressure and this involves the patient wearing a mask over either their nose or their nose and mouth. The mask is connected via tubing to a machine which is really like a reverse vacuum cleaner so it's pumping air into the uh, patient so it's applying this positive pressure. And so this physically holds open the airway so that they can breathe when they're asleep. It's very good at stopping apneas and, um, and these uh, cessations of breathing from occurring. And it's very good at improving sleepiness in people who are sleepy. But unfortunately, it's not always well tolerated. Some people with claustrophobia, for example, have difficulty wearing the mask. And then uh, even people who, who don't mind the mask on their face they can have problems with uh, the skin getting irritated or from sort of pressure type sores. And then there's also problems with just the uh, constant flow of air that can leak out through their mouth or can leak into their eyes and cause uh, dryness of the mouth or eyes. And so 
it's not a perfect uh, treatment. There certainly are other treatments available as well. Um, and uh, there's more information on those alternative treatments in the paper. I think it's pretty clear to say that the two big ones would be a surgical treatment of the airway and what's called a mandibular advancement device, which um, is a mouth guard really that pulls the, uh, the lower jaw forward. And both of these work in about 50% of patients. So obviously there's risks associated with surgeries and there's quite high cost to these treatments and they don't necessarily work for everybody, whereas CPAP certainly works for most people if they can tolerate it. Interested to hear what you said, thank you very much for that, about the links with cardiovascular disease. Can you elaborate there? There's good evidence to suggest that sleep apnea actually causes hypertension. Uh, that's pretty well established. But whether it actually causes other cardiovascular problems like myocardial and heart attacks and strokes is a little bit less clear um, there aren't really good uh, randomised placebo-controlled trials, which in the research world are, are the best uh, kind of trials to do. Data from those sorts of trials really don't exist yet. What we do know is a couple of studies which looked at people who had already been diagnosed with sleep apnea and chose not to use their treatments, that um, if we follow, uh, when those patients were followed up over a long time period, that they did have an increased rate of fatal and non-fatal cardiovascular events. And that was compared to either people with equally severe sleep apnea who uh, were treated or compared to people without sleep apnea. Because that's not a randomised trial, we don't know whether those patients who chose not to treat their sleep apnea also chose not to stick to dietary and lifestyle advice um, about losing weight and eating a healthy diet or or whether they chose not to use other treatments, for example, for their hypertension. So I think until we know the results from these large randomised trials, which are ongoing, I think uh, we don't know for sure whether it actually causes uh, cardiovascular deaths and uh, cardiovascular events like heart attack and stroke. You've already mentioned research there, randomised trials. This is not a straightforward area, is it, to do quality research in, in sleep apnea? There are often uh, ethical issues that we have to take account of, is that right? There are definite ethical issues that need to be considered, particularly when people are conducting trials with sleepy patients who might have occupations such as a train driver or, or bus driver where um, you know, you don't want those people to be involved in a six-month trial where they're not receiving treatment for their, uh, their sleep apnea. The issues also are a problem for uh, cardiovascular trials where, you know, if someone has had a, um, a small stroke, I think a lot of people believe that there's enough evidence that sleep apnea is bad for, for cardiovascular disease that those people should go on and get treatment for their sleep apnea and not um, be partaking in a... Um, a placebo treatment trial. There are real ethical problems that uh, we need to overcome there. The difficulty is that without those good uh, randomised placebo controlled trials, we'll never really be in a situation to really be able to say whether sleep apnea does cause certain consequences or not. So I think it's important to do those studies. Obviously we need to be mindful that, that the people participating in the trials aren't put at any significant risk that we know of. Final thoughts. What's could be done in terms of preventative measures, obviously managing risk factors, I guess, is one thing, but what's the future direction, do you think, for the treatment of sleep apnea? As you say, the managing the risk factors is really where prevention lies. However, many 
the risk factors for sleep apnea are not modifiable. So male gender, advancing age, when women go through menopause, those things aren't things that we can modify. However, if we understood the mechanism by which those factors are causing sleep apnea, then we might be able to influence those intermediate factors. But I think we're a long way from actually being able to do that. The big factor, I think, in terms of prevention really is obesity prevention or management because that's really one of the big risk factors for the disorder. However, again, anyone who's, uh, you know, any patient who's overweight knows how hard it is to, to try and lose weight and, and keep that off and preventing obesity may be quite difficult as well. I guess the, the small factors which, um, you know, may be important are we know that um, for many patients, sleep apnea is worse in the supine position and when laying on their back. And so if uh, patients can avoid laying on their back, if that makes their sleep apnea worse, that can be useful. And avoiding um, alcohol or drugs that relax the dilator muscles or, or any muscles for that matter, you know, they may be prevention strategies that at this point in time we actually could get, get happening. Um, in terms of the future approaches, I think many people in the field believe that the way of the future is in individualised treatment for patients based on their particular causes of sleep apnea and the individual consequences that they may have. So what I mean by that is for two people with sleep apnea, the reasons why they have sleep apnea may be quite different and also the consequences might differ so um, one person might be very sleepy and the other person is completely fine and not affected in terms of their sleepiness but they have other sort of adverse consequences. If we could at this stage in terms of treatment we just really trial virtually everybody on CPAP and then if that doesn't work we look at some of the alternative treatments. If we could understand exactly why somebody has sleep apnea then what factor is important in them then we could perhaps target some treatments so that they don't have to um, just all go through the same process and we might identify in advance the people for whom one of these other treatments is, is useful. That's probably where a lot of people think that the, uh, the field is going. I guess one final uh, point would be that, of course, there are lots of people trying to um, come up with new treatments for sleep apnea, and at this stage I don't think there's anything really that rivals CPAP. Hopefully in the future there'll be some new treatments that are serious contenders that patients will, will tolerate better and, and be able to use more easily. Indeed. Well, it's a fascinating topic. So I think, um, as I said, it's generally uh, something people know a little bit about, but I think by listening to you and reading the paper, people will find out a lot more. Very interesting discussion it's been. But in, So in the meantime, I have to say Dr. Amy Jordan on the line from Melbourne, Australia. Many thanks indeed for talking to The Lancet. You're welcome. Thank you. For more details of Dr. Jordan's paper, visit thelancet.com. This seminar is published Friday, August the 2nd. Many thanks for listening. See you next time.